Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read. I'm writing this from my mother's apartment. It's called Orange. All I could think about was being written into her life story. She made up a story about What was the inspiration for the story? My story is called Cigarettes. What was the genesis? I used to be almost dependent on voice. I want to talk to you. (laughs) And the conversation starts. Hello, and welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and then talk to us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones Lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In today's episode, Chris Strangle will read his short story, Let's Make Up Jack. Chris Strangle holds degrees from Tulane University and Cornell University. He also served as a lecturer at Cornell and as an assistant editor for Epic Magazine. His fiction has appeared in the Oxford American, Granta, One Story, and elsewhere, and has been recognized with a Pushcart Prize, the Margaret Bridgman Scholarship at the Breadloaf Writers Conference, and a Wallace Stegner Fellowship. He grew up in Arkansas and lives in Sunnyvale. Let's make up Jack. Let's make up Jack. No, Sutton. Sutton would be 32, an out-of-work machinist in a little town in Missouri. Because everyone in Missouri is a blue-collar cliché? Okay, he's a civil engineering student at SLU, back in school to finish his degree as an adult at the suggestion of his girlfriend, Chloe. Chloe? Elise. She's tall. They're both six feet. And she's really good-looking in ways that we hint at but don't say outright. She's a combination of grit and grace, revealed in the unselfconscious way she dive-bombs her cereal with her spoon, while the morning light catches in her tawny locks. She's an out-of-work machinist. Sutton's attractiveness we didn't think to determine, but we can't have two good-looking people as principals. So Sutton is wiry and unshaven, with craggy features and a big scar on his right cheekbone. Ugly, really, but in a very masculine, good-looking sort of way. He got the scar when he was a kid, playing with his brother at a construction site. That brother has been in prison, but he's getting out this week. In fact, they're going to pick him up this afternoon. It's been a source of tension with Elise. She's been nothing but supportive, of course, and she's gone with Sutton to see David at the prison plenty of times. But now that he's going to be a house guest, sleeping on an air mattress in their living room until he can get on his feet, God knows how long, There's a fraught stillness in the apartment. No more unemployment jokes when Sutton gets home from class. No more impromptu drinking nights, the two of them on the kitchen floor with a cheap bottle of whiskey. Vodka? Anyway, they're not laughing as much. The sex has been weird. And they don't even fight over TV shows, usually a favorite pastime. Sutton doesn't suspect it, but he's half the reason Elise is so anxious. She's ready to make the sacrifice to help out a family member. She and Sutton are married, actually. But she can tell that her young husband has some demons in his past, and that David is one of them. They don't talk about it. Sutton prefers telling her stories about how young the other students in his classes seem. They all text constantly. No one ever asks a question. No one has ever heard of any actor or band or writer. He can tell by their socks which ones have had sex before. In return, she regales him with thrilling stories about using his student ID to access the library computers to look for jobs. 
Trading commiseration was enough for a while, and with a strict budget, his loan money, and her savings, it seemed doable. But now this other thing is hanging over them, and their apartment doesn't have a room big enough for three people and the elephant. Why is Elise a machinist? Let's make her an out-of-work hairstylist, fired from her job at an upscale salon after butchering the bob of a wealthy, vindictive client. She only screwed up because she's been worried about Sutton, and now this bored rich woman has done such a good job poisoning the well that none of the other high-end shops will touch her. There we go. There we go. Woman works in salon, gets fired by overreacting second woman because third woman hates haircut. You know what? Elise is a machinist. She's quick but precise in the turret lathe. She's out of work because she punched her supervisor when he took his dick out in the break room broke his nose, which helped the other bosses convince her that any lawsuit would be bad news for everyone. Sutton wanted to kill the guy, and she wanted to let him. Actually, she never told Sutton. She made up a story about getting laid off. Actually, she did tell Sutton, but while he was upset on her behalf, he never seemed all that upset on his own behalf. He had a level-headed reaction, as if they'd seen the story on the news. A small difference, maybe, and maybe it was all in her head but it bugged her. We'll need to do more research on being a machinist, throw in more vocabulary like turret lathe, computer numerical control servo mechanisms, but not right now. Peripheral research is a dead-end alley that goes on forever, unless there's a big problem like turret lathe itself being an out-of-date term, which it is since most modern CNC lathes have turrets. She's quick but precise on the turning center, they rise on the day of the brothers' release. Serial, bedhead, vulnerable bodies in delicate cotton. Something pretty outside, like birdsong, tempered with something annoying, like yard work. But specific, unique examples of those things. We can only think of cardinals and lawnmowers right now, so we'll come back later. Sutton, skipping his fluid dynamics lab, is leaning against the counter and peeling an orange with his fingers. Elise is at the table, dive-bombing her cereal, morning light catches on the toaster. How'd you sleep? he asks. You were there, she says. Neither of them slept well. He makes a little stack of rind pieces on the counter. I figure if we leave around noon, he says, that gives us plenty of time. Should we pick up anything? she asks. And get out of jail present? Is that a thing? He doesn't answer. He could be deciding if that's a good idea or a bad one, or he could be thinking about fluid dynamics, but she knows better than to ask. His officious dejection is a choice, a moat that she must pace around until he's ready to lower the gate, or until she's tired of waiting. How about a gift card, she asks. To a strip club. Hmm, he says. What's the gnarliest strip club around here? A really funky one. Full services. Hmm, he says. Somewhere with a just-released discount. Floors stickier than flypaper. She's funny. But is she also asking him pointedly? Is Sutton the type of guy who knows whether any nearby strip clubs have secret menus? Did he used to be? Maybe we'll just have dinner, he says. After some more quiet domestic drama, they shower, separately, and get in the car to head to the prison. The car is hers, and it's a maroon compact with missing hubcaps. Does the make matter? If we name a real company, that becomes a thing, and 
will have to keep naming companies, which is good for specificity but can be off-putting. Maroon Compact is fine. A maroon, Japanese compact. Made by a company that was founded by Soichiro Honda. No, they shower together. Let's not be squeamish. One of them has tiny nipples, and one has lightly streaked underwear. The shower is completely practical. They don't participate in each other's routines. They certainly don't kiss or caress. In truth, they'd rather bathe separately, but they share an instinct to preserve some illusions. They reach around each other politely for the soap. On the trip to the prison, they pass something on the side of the road that makes for an extremely striking image. It's something common and innocuous, but freighted with a hard-to-pin-down menace, like a giant tree, jaggedly shorn to keep the branches back from the power lines. But better than that. We're stalling. We need to get to why David has been in prison. David has been incarcerated seven and a half years for robbing a gas station with a pistol. No, a knife, which is scarier because of the implied intimacy. And it was a pet store the one he had been working at for six months, the longest he'd ever held down a job. His co-worker, the one whose throat he'd held the knife to, testified that she had turned him down for a date on three different occasions. He denied this. We don't necessarily believe her either, but the possibility casts a shadow. Does it have to be a violent crime, though? Is that too on the nose? Is everybody's brother in Missouri robbing everyone with knives? Does the backstory of everything have to be all mayhem all the time? How about a simple DUI? Extremely common, still serious, less garish. We'll make it a third DUI. Plus a conviction for vehicular assault because after draining the pint of vodka, rum, he bumped over a sidewalk and plowed into a minivan at a drive through breaking limbs on three people. The release point has a series of chain-link gates on wheels, and when they've all rolled back, David stamps through with his head twisting side to side, a kid without a hall pass. He's three years younger than Sutton and a head shorter, and he has the same grim aspect that shouldn't be appealing but is. He looks like an actor made up to be ugly. David hugs them briefly, one at a time. Thanks for picking me up, he says. Hope you weren't waiting long. Elise says, not entirely confident that the joke will fly. Hmm, David says. On the ride home, we don't mention the tree again. Partly because once is enough, and partly because now, with the long separated brothers riding next to each other in the quiet cabin, a bisected tree might be too on the nose. Elise, sitting in the back seat, looks from her husband to her brother-in-law. They stare ahead at the road. She picks at some kind of crust on her pant leg. We've got the living room all set up for you, Sutton says. It's a little cramped with the air mattress, but it ought to be fine. I'm sure it will be, David says. Is there a window? Yeah, looks onto the street. You can watch the neighbor's dog shit on our sidewalk. I'll take it. The car passes the shorn tree. Disks of lighter bark on the trunk where saw teeth severed boughs. The silence resumes. David rolls his window down a few inches, then rolls it back up. Sutton drums his fingers on the handle of the emergency brake, then stops. Elise sighs, perhaps louder than necessary. She picks off a piece of the crust on her jeans, an anonymous gray flake. Surreptitiously, she tries to flick it into Sutton's hair. She's causing kind of a problem. This is a significant car trip. Brothers together again. 
silence gravid with undisclosed details from their pasts, trees, and other better imagery scrolling by outside. She should be feeling knots in her stomach, stress that she can only partially attribute to the natural awkwardness of the situation. Instead, she's throwing shit. There's even a loose thread at the seam of her pants only a few inches away from the spot of crap. Why can't she pull on that metaphor? Now that she points it out, though, maybe the brothers are sort of, if you look at it a certain way, kind of annoying. We've never been to prison, but is it that depressing when you get out? How long are these two going to brood before we learn what happened? And as far as that goes, what's the revelation going to be? That their dad was an alcoholic? That Sutton was driving the car and David took the rap? That life sucks and then you scowl for 50 years? What is Elise supposed to be doing in the back seat anyway? Sitting quietly and feeling feelings with metered insight but grave intensity? Loving her husband while experiencing doubts? Surrogating efficiently? We established that when her boss dropped Trow, she blasted him in the snout. Here she's bored, waiting for these men to start making cryptic references to dark events in the past, then to get drunk and throw a few punches, and finally for someone to reveal that when they were 17, Uncle Emmett killed Aunt Lena with a hunting rifle, and that's how they know love is bullshit and why talking to girls is hard. Hmm, she says. So let's skip ahead. David's return to the world precipitates two emotional crises and the one physical altercation. Fissures in the relationship between Sutton and Elise become undeniable, then unassailable. After a couple of weeks, David leaves on a bus headed to Cedar Rapids, where a friend can get him on at a store that sells tractors. But it's too late. Alone together for the first time in what seems like a long time, leaning away from each other in opposite corners of the kitchen, Sutton and Elise do not feel their hearts swell with the desire to make things right. They feel exhausted, guilty, a little desperate. Morning light catches in the broken shards of who they thought they were. Outside, a sweetly singing bird gets run over by a lawnmower. Six months later, they get a divorce. They try to stay respectful throughout the process and manage okay. One night he gets home and hears her crying through the door, and she hears him put his keys back in his pocket and walk away. She doesn't know whether he's giving her space or just avoiding her. On another night, the same thing happens with the roles reversed, and she learns it's some of both. They don't have kids or dogs or boats, so the paperwork is easy. Everything is done in two weeks. Unless Missouri has a waiting period, which it does. It takes them a month. Eleven years later... Elise is 42. She works as a tattoo artist at a parlor in Dogtown, which she can walk to from her apartment on Victoria. It's called Dogtown Tattoo Parlor. She still has the maroon compact, but uses it mostly on weekends. No, she sold the compact years ago and bought a used black coupe. But she does use it mostly on weekends, zipping out to the suburbs for friends' barbecues and occasionally to conferences and studio residencies at other tattoo shops in the Midwest. She has become somewhat well-known in that community. Her original designs are industrial and abstract, complex but never busy. For new clients, she has a five-month waiting list. The decade has sharpened and accentuated her. Though in her 20s she wore flats to mitigate her height, her new uniform is an aggressive open-toed heel with turquoise or rich scarlet nail polish. She's good-looking in a way that now we don't mind saying outright. She's handsome, 
If crow's feet and laugh lines were products, she would be selling them on billboards. Her arms, always bare in a sleeveless shift dress, are covered with intricate work. The piece on the inside of her left bicep is the first one she ever got, a simple outline of a drinking glass with exactly one half shaded in, which she got the week she signed the divorce papers. She regrets it now, since it's a little too on the nose, but it's a fond type of regret, more like teasing herself. That tattoo, after all, begat the second one. She loved the soft red leather in the room where she had them done, with the morning light catching on the chrome of the two-coil machines, always something obscure and excellent on the stereo. The vibe was very different from the milling and machining places that she stopped applying to. She picked up drawing where she'd left off in seventh grade. At the tattoo parlor, she cleaned the floors until they let her clean the machines, and cleaned the machines until they let her apprentice. At home, she practiced with stick and pokes on her thighs. The nautical star on her right came out miles better than the one on her left, though she did them only a month apart. Her walking commute takes her along the edge of Forest Park, and sometimes she detours through the fields if the weather is nice. The zoo is there too, and admission is free. Sometimes she detours all the way to the south entrance, turns left at the gift shop, and wends along the path of the river's edge immersion exhibit until she reaches the black rhinoceros enclosure. There, she leans against the cold metal rails and gazes at the armored, weathered bodies of the rhinos, which are more gray than black, and reflects on the unlikely persistence of things in this world. Although, no, she doesn't. She went to the zoo once and hated the smell. Her ruminations on survival occur with a mouthful of toothpaste and the view from her bathroom window, a bicycle locked to a telephone pole, stripped of its front wheel, back wheel, seat, gears, chain, and brakes. She wonders, does it still think of itself as a bicycle? How much do the little parts matter? In her first appointment today, she inks a design based on Irish runes for a college kid with an orange afro. In the second, she does a geometric sequence on the underboob of a preschool teacher. Her afternoon is reserved for one client, and he's waiting in a seat by the window when she gets back from lunch. He would be 43, but looks older, with a light beard unable to cover hollow cheeks, bony shoulders under his gray t-shirt. His jeans are too big, but they're also embarrassingly new. Hi, Lise he says. Hi, Sutton, she says. This is the first time they've seen each other since the divorce. The first was to mark the anniversary of their separation. She had in mind an ironic annual dinner, which over the course of years might become a comfortable, amiable tradition. Instead, it felt like a boring blind date, and they never tried again. That was nine years ago. The second time was six months ago, at David's funeral. Sutton called and invited her to Cedar Rapids for the service. She thought about taking him a bottle of the old floor-drinking whiskey or whatever it was, but decided against it, considering the circumstances. Instead, she baked cookies and didn't realize how bad they came out until she got hungry on the interstate and tried one. She pitched them in the trash at the next gas station and bought flowers in Iowa City. The funeral was short and conventional. After that, they started talking on the phone short chats maybe twice a month. She guessed that, as little time as it had been, and as long ago as it was, Sutton wanted to talk to someone that had known his brother. His new wife had never met David, although they'd been married several years. 
At some point, he asked about coming into the shop, getting some work done in commemoration, if that was a thing. She moved him ahead of the wait list. You look well, Elise says. I look like shit, he says. But you look well. Thanks. She leads him to the back corner. Together, they look at the sketch she's done, the shape of a small boat seen from overhead, surrounded by a vast latticework of wavy lines, baroque currents in a vast ocean. It looks lonely to her, but also peaceful. She doesn't mind input from her clients. In fact, she likes it when they take an active role in the art that's going on their bodies, but Sutton just nods. It's great, he says, and I appreciate this. I'm happy to do it, she says, and I'm charging you triple. He takes off his shirt and she puts him on the massage table. She cleans the right shoulder blade and the area around it with rubbing alcohol, shaves it, cleans it again, and by then the thermal fax is done making the stencil. She rubs his skin with stick deodorant to prep for the transfer, and once the design is in place, covers it with ointment. When she fires up her machine to start the line work, she gives him a calming speech. This will be excruciating, she says. Worst pain imaginable, like being flayed alive while you're on acid. Hmm, he says. David had seemed to be doing well in Iowa. The people at the tractor store liked him and he got his picture framed on the wall. He found an AA chapter and got his third bronze chip. He met a woman and they had a little girl, but the woman and the girl left for Minneapolis after a few years with no proposal. David got a DUI and went to jail for two years. The tractor store couldn't use him after that, so he worked at a warehouse and then a car wash and then a paintball field. Sutton, paying his dues on the lower rungs of a mid-sized architecture firm, tried to make a trip up there every six months, but David's path was pretty much locked in. He turned 38 and asphyxiated in his apartment a few days later, getting the jump on his liver and his heart. Elise places her left hand and right forearm flat on Sutton's back. She holds the tattoo machine above the stencil. The tip hovers above the undulations that surround the boat. She has done this thousands of times, but here's a moment of hesitation. Tattoos are permanent. That's the point of them. You can't get one, change your mind, and switch it to something else. What did Leah think of the design? She asks. Leah, his wife. She liked it. Did you show her? No. Shirtless, his back is as scrawny as his shoulders suggested, the ridges of his spine pushing up like ruins in sand. Maybe she's hesitating because it's strange for her to feel the warmth of his skin through the latex gloves, this body that used to be a given in her daily life, had, in fact, been officially given in sickness and in health. But we doubt it. She knows better. For one thing, she's a professional. The human body is not her canvas. A colleague of hers uses that phrase, and she always responds with an armpit fart. But skin is a basic material of her job, and she doesn't shudder at the significance of it any more than a contractor gets chills from pouring concrete. How's Frank? Sutton asks. Good, she says. He's okay. She and Frank have been on again, off again for a few years. They're off right now, though she's been thinking about calling. He's a chef at a restaurant a few blocks away, and they met because he wanted a large, flaming skull on his chest. She's talked him down from that, which he resented, then respected, then thanked her for. Haven't seen him in a while, to tell the truth, she says. He wanted me to get a dog, and I didn't want one. Stupid as that sounds. No, that makes sense, 
Sutton says, although he doesn't specify which part. She changes her posture, readjusts her hands, gets situated again. She steadies the needles, but again she hesitates. Let's rule out sentimentality. It's not sentimentality because Sutton's back just isn't familiar. She is mildly surprised to realize it, but she doesn't remember the terrain. The mole at the base of his neck, a thin scar on the other scapula, birthmark triplets low on his side. She doesn't recall any of them, but she doesn't remember their absence either. It's a small thing to note, though. She's not bowled over by a sudden awareness of the power of time. She doesn't feel a knot in her stomach or any mysterious stress that she can only partially attribute to the natural awkwardness of the situation. Sutton says, Life is funny. It's like he can't read her mind. Although he's face down on the massage bed, she knows the expression he would be wearing. Such a trite phrase, delivered with utter conviction and somber aspect. Of course, the effect would be altered somewhat with his face pressed into the opening of the headrest, squished up like a baby's. This is such a wondrous mental image that she has to fight the impulse to bend down and inspect the real thing. Instead, she focuses on the stencil, the waves, the client's skin, the ink waiting in the coils. It may well be an important moment for him, some alchemy of grief and reflection brought on by her presence or the tragedy that inspired the tattoo or the 70s dance hall that we'll have drifting in from a corner speaker, maybe all of it together. But it's his moment, the unifying scene of a story that he's telling himself in his head. Not that she's apathetic, but her life is not being defined here. Her moment might have been four years ago, when her flight out of Denver was struck by lightning and fell a thousand feet, and she surprised herself by speaking out loud, calmly and seriously, to God. Or it might have been two months ago, when she and Frank stood outside the pet store in the mall screaming about puppy mills and character defects with smoothies in their hands. Or it might have been the time she decked her boss for exposing himself, or the time she flicked crusty stuff into her husband's hair and decided to get a divorce. Most likely, it was all of these, and others to come. For the afternoon, though, she doesn't mind playing a supporting role in someone else's moment. It doesn't diminish her, and in fact she's glad she can offer this service to a friend. He sighs in his serious way, and she smiles where he can't see. Tattoos are permanent, but they're not mandatory. She's just an aesthetic consultant and does not determine what people make of the things that happen to them, what they take from the sheer variety of experience available on planet Earth, what becomes essential. She lowers the needle, anticipates the flinch, begins to work. Let's close with the little boat on the ink sea, pressed between Elise's hands and Sutton's back, a moment of intimacy ten years removed from their last. Actually, Let's get the pressure off that image by following Elise home and having her dive bomb a microwave dinner while an early snow floats down outside the window. We'll make it winter for that. But then let's have something better than snow floating down outside a window for the love of God. Let's scrap winter, in fact. It's fall. Leaves float down outside the window. Only better than that. You can read the story in full at the Kenyon Review online and find out more about Chris's writing at chrisstrangle.com.
Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. Thank you for being on Off the Page. Thanks for having me. And thank you for reading Let's Make Up Jack. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. So I think the first thing I want to ask is just what was the inspiration for this story? What was the genesis? Mm -hmm. Uh, Frustration. (laughs) Uh, I mean, literally, how does it start? Let's Make Up Jack, No Sutton. I don't know. I I mean, are are you ever writing something and suddenly you realize that writing stuff is so dumb? And making up stories is like a silly thing to do with your life. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Every day. Yeah. I mean, hopefully that's like a passing feeling. But for whatever reason, I was just trying to draft. I wanted to write a new story. And I had some vague idea about some domestic drama, brother in prison, that kind of thing. And I, I started writing it. And I was like already sick of the idea, you know, it, like sentence number one of the first draft. I was sick of the idea. And so I edited it. Right. Um, nah, not Jack. How about Sutton? That's more interesting. And that, like, I don't know, it just seemed like a, a weird voice all of a sudden. What is this? Like, what if a story could edit itself as it went along? And after that, I just, I don't know, <laughs> let it keep going to see what would happen. It feels as if you're sort of exposing the writer's brain in this story in a way that I can certainly recognize somewhat guiltily. Like, oh, they're driving by the tree, that tree has to have some symbolic weight. And so you're, you are, I think, yeah. making fun of our inclination to, to make those moves. Yeah. But it also seems <laughs> that the story is, in a way, teaching us what better writing is because the story continually rejects these sort of obvious tropes, obvious feelings, and it's kind of pushing for, as it says at the very end, something better. It's always pushing for something that's a little more authentic and surprising. I hope so. Yeah, I think if this story is successful, it, it means that the reader is is kind of buying this weird attempt at dramatizing the attempt to make a, a story into a good story. And yeah, I, I can't tell if it's cheating. I mean, maybe this is just like completely cheating. <laughs> so something that I've said to my students is that there aren't necessarily rules of fiction or rules of a story in general, but that each story sort of makes its own rules. And I wondered if in the process of writing and revising this story, you found yourself having to sort of figure out what the rules of this piece and this voice were, and if you ever ran into challenges or moments of uncertainty. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. In some ways, it feels like this narrator is trying to take apart the story as I'm trying to put it together. I don't know. I mean, I'm not implying that the that the, that the the narrator took on a life of their own and I couldn't control it. I, I don't mean that. The thing with this story was once the joke was kind of in place, once I did kind of have a grip on the idea that this is a story that's going to edit itself as it goes along and seemingly be aware of the literary moves that it's, it's trying to employ, that's like a – that's an okay joke, you know? But it's – that's not – 15 pages worth of an okay joke. So I think part of the drafting process for me was trying to find a way in the back half of the story to do something more, hopefully, than, than just this kind of weird end joke. And that's maybe that's that's almost more like the story figuring out its own rules and then trying to unlearn them or play by a different set of rules and, and get to something hopefully more interesting, more meaningful than this odd writing inside baseball. Well, that's something that I often admire about your writing is that you have a story begin with this 
quirky, funny, unusual premise, and then you often take it to a deeper and more emotional place than we might have expected. And I wonder, at what point in the drafting did you know that there was going to be this leap in time midway through, and that it was not going to be just the story of the brothers staying with them, but it was in fact going to be this much larger scale story of the demise of their relationship? Yeah, I, I figured out that that was going to happen a, kind of at the moment when I, I typed that out for the first time. I had a professor in grad school, John Robert Lennon, who used to say that one of the things he liked about writing is that when he found himself getting to a moment in the story that he thought, oh, I wish I could skip two weeks ahead, he remembered, I can, I can do that. And I had been working on this story and kind of come to that moment thinking, ugh, I'm bored with this. I don't want to write the kind of the the thing that even I expect this story to do. I want to just skip all of that. And as soon as that that word echoed in my head, skip, I remembered, oh, oh, I can I can do that. Yeah, that would be that would be more interesting. But I I don't know. As you accrue experience with the characters, you you want to treat them as real people. I mean, that's how fiction works when it works. People care about fiction not because the writer is smart, but because the writer has pulled off this magic trick of making fake people that kind of feel real that we still get emotionally invested in. So for me, I I don't know, after the after that first half and after kind of having my metafictional fun, I just I don't care about that stuff really at the end of the day as much as I care about, as Adam Johnson puts it, the human heart. Well, I think the story absolutely performs that magic trick of starting with very self-consciously fake, made-up people that then accrue depth and vulnerability as the story goes on. And I think that's pretty pretty damn seamless, actually. Oh, well, ho- hopefully. I appreciate it. Maybe the last thing I wanted to ask you about was the final moment when she's looking at his back. Mm-hmm. And she's thinking about how this moment is more important for him than it is for her. She's a supporting character in this moment. And then she starts to think about what her moment might have been, whether it was this near-death experience on a plane or this fight with her partner. And I was just curious about whether you thought about that sequence as sort of playing off of this concept of an epiphany as Mm -hmm. something we come to expect in literary short stories. And if you were trying to reinvigorate that concept. That's that's a great way to describe what I hope is happening. I mean, I think in the first place, it's the same thing as ever, right? You're writing the story and you're trying to really notice what you have put down. You're trying to notice things about the situation that you have made up that seem that seem true. And that was one of those moments where it's like, you know, it's right at the end of the story and it does feel like this is where the protagonist has a big realization or maybe doesn't, but the reader does about their life or something like that. And I think the story diverges in the middle when Elise is not cooperating. And I liked that she continued to not cooperate, that even in the story that is about her, she still kind of doesn't quite allow herself to be defined, right? And so where she kind of thinks through the what seem like other moments that could be short stories about her, I hope that that's a way to sort of dismiss the idea that, at least in this case, the story is going to pin her down. She's more interesting than than just being pinned down by this I one scene. I love that the story doesn't let her be pinned down or let any moment be pinned down because, again, it could end with this image of 
the boat tattoo, which is sort of fraught and symbolic a la the shorn tree, but instead it continues to her going home and something's happening out the window, but it's not snow. Yeah. It feels to me like the story is continually searching for the uncliché and the authentic. Yeah, I I hope so. I, I appreciate it. Off the Page is produced by the Stanford Storytelling Project and the Creative Writing Program. Thanks to our lead producer, Jackson Roach, and assistant producers, Alec Glassford, Aparna Verma, Sienna White, Aaron Wu, Kathy Wong, and Adesua Agbenile. Thanks also to Jonah Willingans. Thanks to Ivan Bolin, Christina Ablaza, and Ose Jackson at the Creative Writing Program. For their generous support to the Stanford Storytelling Project, we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.